everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers, and that's right, this is the only show that I've found that is going issue by issue through the history of DC Comics. It's Monday. That means that it's issue by issue, Golden Age, and uh, we're going to get into it today on a little bit of a shorter one, just two issues, uh, because... I'm going to be doing some traveling and need to sort of bank a couple episodes in in the old can so that I can uh, I can I can travel for uh, work. So we're just going to be covering Detective Comics number 40 and Adventure Comics number 51. Still a lot of goodness in there. Batman, Crimson Avenger, Our Man, Sandman. Uh, I would have had a third one if it was going to be a, a you know a short one like like those two with only two, but it's Superman number four. Uh, so that's kind of, it's got four stories in it, so unfortunately we're going to have to push that one till next week. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sure you were all hoping for some good Superman goodness, but just got to wait a week, and then we can get into that. But first, let's set the scene, as we always do, with some real-world history for the times that these comics were coming out. And uh, here's a little bit of a... um, not, I don't want to say flashback, but a reference to last week's episode when we had uh, the Flash dealing with uh, Olympic qualifiers and sort of gambling and, and fixing of those races. On May 6th, 1940, the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, formally canceled the 1940 Summer Olympics. They had been moved to Helsinki, but unfortunately, the war in Europe has gotten too bad and uh, they can't risk traveling to Europe for the Olympics. So, unfortunately, they have been canceled, so The Flash saved the day for nothing. May 7th through the 10th, the Norway debate took place in the British House of Commons. Its purpose was to discuss the progress of the Norwegian campaign uh, in, in the war. The debate quickly brought to a head widespread dissatisfaction with the conduct of the war by Neville Chamberlain's government, at the end of the second day, there was a call for the uh, in the House for the members to hold a no-confidence vote, which if you know anything about, or if you don't know anything about British parliamentary procedure, a no-confidence vote can be called for at any time, I believe. And it basically just says, we, the uh, members of this House, don't think that the Prime Minister is running the, the government well, we don't have confidence in them, so we wish to basically remove them and uh, vote in somebody else uh, as as prime minister. I'm, I may be getting that wrong. I'm not British, but that's how I understand it. Uh, obviously, British listeners, if I'm wrong at all, you know, reach out and I'll, I will uh, fix it. Fix, I don't because I don't want to be wrong. Uh, the motion passed and it led to Chamberlain resigning as prime minister and the replacement of his ministry by a broadly-based coalition government, which is typically how the British parliamentary you know, houses work. There's a coalition, not just one party controlling everything. Uh, this government coalition was under Winston Churchill, and they, they governed the United Kingdom until after the end of the war in Europe in May 1945. May 8th, Peter Benchley, author... It was born in Princeton, New Jersey. He is the author that wrote Jaws. Uh, I have read Jaws. Uh, I do find the movie to be much better. The uh, characterization of 
of women and a lot of the characters in the book is pretty garbage. So I would say watch the movie. Don't don't read the book. That's one of the few books that I will say. Just watch the movie. Don't don't read the book. The book is bad. May 9th, the age of conscription in the United Kingdom was raised to 36, and Belgium declared a state of emergency and placed its military on alert. Things are getting very, very hot under the collar in Europe, and it will only uh, get worse. So let's get into the first issue that we'll be covering this week. Detective Comics number 40 was released May 7th, 1940, with a cover date of June 1940. We have one debut in this issue. Uh, Clayface, Basil Carlo, uh, not a big clay monster. That doesn't happen until much later. Uh, In this issue, the authors uh, for Batman are Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson. Uh, And Crimson Avenger is the solo act of John Letty. Uh, So let's get into the issue first up with Batman. So Batman Begins is a film by Christopher Nolan. Just kidding. Uh, Batman, the Batman story begins uh, with Bruce talking to Robin as Bruce is getting ready to go out for the day. Uh, He's going to meet Julie, his fiance, uh, who you may have forgotten about because she's only every once in a while mentioned. Uh, although, if you listened to last week's episode, you know that Batman sort of mentioned her when he was uh, goo-goo eyes for uh, Catwoman. So, he is going to go meet Julie because she is a motion picture actress uh, suddenly. Uh, and he's going to go meet her at the studio where she is filming a film. The uh, studio is the Argus Motion Picture Company. And for those out there that know things about DC Comics, Argus is an organization in the more modern version of the DC Universe that has to deal with superheroes. It's a lot of the times Steve Trevor is involved with it, at least in in the New 52. He is sort of the somewhat head or head agent at Argus. Uh, it, it, It basically is a government organization that deals with superheroes, but not the DEO, which is a different thing. And so... Bruce and Julie, or Julie brings Bruce to the director. No, not the director, the, sorry, the head of Argus Pictures, Mr. Bentley. Uh, we don't ever learn his first name, but his name is Mr. Bentley. Uh, we then, throughout the this visit, we learn about all of the sort of heated conflicts, interpersonal conflicts that are happening at the studio. So first, I mean, first we meet Kenneth Todd, and he's the new star of the movie, which is called The Terror, uh, or The Terror in the Castle. Wait, uh, Dread Castle is what the movie is called. And he is the terror, which is the, the monster in this movie. Uh, and he is he's playing the monster. It was a role previously held by uh, Basil Carlo in the original. This is a remake, which is, I guess, kind of weird to think. Although I'm sure that there are movies out there that in 1940 were remakes of previous movies. Uh, I I enjoy classic film, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that are remakes of movies that happened in the short time that film was going on uh, in 1940. They're having this conversation about uh, Kenneth Todd being the new star and talking about Basil Carlo when who should walk through the door but Basil Carlo. 
and he just came in to wish Todd a uh, good luck, or break a leg, as they say in show business, and told him not to be foolish like he was, and, and to have lots of luck. So Julie, or Bentley explains that uh, Basil Carlo, after he got big, he, you know, got into trouble, and the, the publicity from it basically ruined his career, uh, so that he just, his pictures didn't sell, and he just couldn't get any roles after that. So he's kind of uh, fallen into obscurity, um, as a sort of has-been. A short time later, or I guess it says at that moment, so immediately at, while having this conversation, an angry glasses-wearing man, spectacle, a bespectacled man, Ned Norton, who is the director uh, of the Dreadcastle, or should I say he was, because Ned Norton has not been showing up. He's not being reliable as a director, so Mr. Bentley has fired him. And before we leave Ned Norton, he says, I won't forget this, Bentley. I won't forget this. Remember, you'll never finish this picture without me. And he's got an exclamation point at the end, and it's bolded, so you know he puts the emphasis on me. So uh, the tour continues of the studio, and we hear a sort of tiff... Uh, but first we learn that uh, Bentley has built a full-size replica of a castle, like with a working moat and everything, uh, which I, I've read a lot about the Golden Age uh, or Golden Era. Golden Age? Film era? The Golden Age film era? The Golden Age of film. And uh, they would never build a full uh, castle, uh, you know, full working castle that just doesn't make any sense they would build part of one for sure uh maybe um not out of stone probably out of wood and and nothing behind it that's just how it works that's otherwise it's ridiculous so this movie this movie studio will be going under uh will be going bankrupt for sure but i digress they hear a commotion this tour group of bruce wayne julie madison what is her last name? It's not important. And Mr. Bentley hear a sort of a tiff going on. And they're like, ooh, a tiff. Everyone loves watching a tiff. And we learn that it is Lorna Dane, the star of the picture. Uh, Julie is is, a, is like a supporting actress. She's not a, she's not the star. And she is, uh, looks like she's breaking up with her sweetheart, Fred Walker, uh, which she is uh, known to do. Uh, Bentley does call her a gold digger, which I, you know, is obviously not not cool uh, to call someone. I mean, she makes her own money, so I don't know why she would. It's not like she is poor. She is a working actress, and while well, they, they got paid pretty, pretty okay back in the day. Uh, Fred Walker says to Lorna Dane, uh, he says, you can't walk out on me now. What about our love? And she says, our love? Ha ha. Don't make me laugh, even though I already did. Listen, Fred, you haven't had a role in months. I can't afford to let myself be tied to an actor that's slipping. And he says, you vixen, I ought to kill you. You don't deserve to live. And, he, and then and then he must, he must storm off. We don't see him storm off, but we see him on a dark background. And he says, laugh at me, will you? When I get through with you, you won't laugh again, ever. And the ever is underlined, so you know he means it. Uh, later on in the day, Bruce says that it's been a very enjoyable experience, but it's getting late, so he's he's got to go. And uh, so he takes Julie home, 
and then we we still we stay on Mr. Bentley and a short mob mafia looking guy uh comes up to him very stereotypical pinstripe suits uh fedora he comes up to him and he says hi bentley decided to accept my offer yet all right maybe i should do like a wise guy yeah hi bentley decided to accept my offer yet and he says off you gangster off the lot i refuse to pay you protection money now get off before i call the police and he says okay bentley it's your funeral but don't blame me if anything happens to any of your stars. Nobody talks to Roxy Brenner like this. When I get through with you, you'll learn to keep your mouth shut. See you soon, Bentley. Um, so that's not good. There's so much stuff going on in this studio. It's crazy. I don't know how this like picture can go on. Everyone's fighting. Everyone's breaking up with lovers. The director's being fired. It's crazy. It's crazy. So later at the Wayne uh, Museum, museum, home, sorry, I mean, it could be a museum, uh, uh, Bruce is talking to Rob and he thinks that something is going, definitely going to happen at the studio. There's like an aura of hate pervading the atmosphere of the place. And he says something's going to happen and soon. Uh, a few days later, Bruce visits again, which I mean... If I was dating a Hollywood actress, I would want to go to set as much as possible. I find the movie-making process to be fascinating. Uh, he is there watching f scenes being filmed, and this is, uh, this is the a big murder scene with uh, Lorna Dane, in, in, and her character is going to get murdered. Which, for being the star, being the first one murdered in a s string of murders is not great. Doesn't seem like a very good use of, you know, your star. That'd be like if in Casablanca, if Humphrey Bogart's character got murdered, like maybe not even halfway through the movie, and then other people got murdered. It's like, well, that's not a good use of star power. But uh, I I didn't write the movie. I didn't write Dread Castle um, because nobody asked me to. So we see the, the filming of this scene going on, you know, people behind the cameras, the scary hunchback looking murderer character, obviously, um, Kenneth Todd is coming at Lorna Dane with a knife. When we cut to, uh, the, a darkened corner of the set and a hideous face watching with baleful eyes. And this spooky figure says, fools, they play at murder, not realizing that I do not pretend, but shall in reality bring death. So, the murder scene, the actual part of the scene that is going to be the murder, is about to happen when lights go off, there's a scream, uh, a few moments later someone turns back on the lights, and Lorna Dane has been murdered for real. For real, no cap, for real, for real, been murdered. So, from a day safe distance, the spooky figure is grinning diabolically, and he says, The scene is finished, for death is the director! He's got a lot of good lines. He's very poetic. Uh, the police investigate, but at the end of the of a week, they are forced to report that Lorna Dane was murdered by person or persons unknown. They got diddly squat. They don't know anything. Technology is not at a you know place where they can figure it out. And uh, Julie visits Bruce, and she's super duper worried because they're gonna they're gonna keep filming the picture. Uh, and, and she's supposed to be killed next in the next scene. 
by the terror. So she's afraid the same thing's going to happen to her. That's not a crazy thing to think. Uh, Julie, I almost called you Lorna. And, and Bruce says, don't worry, the murderer won't try for you. He just wanted to kill Lorna. She clearly wronged him in some way. But Julie leaves and Bruce decides it's time to step into action. And he says, Robin, put on your costume. Oh, sorry. He says, Dick, put on your, he doesn't say costume. He says outfit, which I is worse. I, he should say costume. Outfit. Come on. Uh, so Batman, the Dark Knight, and Robin, the boy wonder, hop into uh, not, not the red uh, sort of car that Batman has used previously. This is more of a, a black vehicle. Uh, and it's longer, and it's it's front almost looks bat-like. It, it's not bat-like. It's not even close to anything like the bat gyro or bat copter where it has a full-on bat face. But I, I can see it starting to become somewhat bat-like. Uh, I don't know when the actual bat mobile uh, appears. I guess we'll find out together. Kind of the whole point of this thing that we're doing, this journey we're on. I mean, not that, not just to find out when the Batmobile comes around, but you you get the gist. They head to the studio, and they uh, they come upon a meeting happening uh, un, unhappily between uh, Bentley and uh, Roxy Brenner and his goons. And they're saying, you know, hey, didn't I tell you something bad was going to happen to... To, to your stars, to your production. And uh, so Bentley's like, did you kill Lorna Dane? He says, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Maybe you should pay up your protection money and maybe nothing else bad will happen to you, see? Bada bing. Uh, so uh, from the ceiling, hurdles Batman and Robin. They knock out the gangsters quite quickly. And uh, and uh, scare them off and, and, and kind of kick them. Uh, he, he very funnily kicks uh, Roxy Brenner in the butt and kind of sends him flying. And after the gangsters have been dispatched, Batman talks to Bentley. He says he's going to clean up this mystery for you now that Roxy Brenner is, has been dealt with. And he asks, who else would want to kill Lorna Dane? And he, and Bentley says, Fred Walker, her old sweetheart, or perhaps Ned Norton did it so he could get even with him, Bentley, and, and stop the picture. Seems kind of like a drastic thing to do, to be like, you fired me, now I'm going to kill some other person. It doesn't really make any sense, I guess, in terms of revenge. You just killed somebody that had nothing to do with this. But uh, we don't know Ned Norton. He could be a psychopath. So Batman tells Robin to stay at the studio and sort of guard, keep your eyes peeled for anything suspicious. And he heads to Fred Walker's house. He uses, a, it just says a pass key is used and the door slowly opens. What does that mean? Does that mean that Batman has a key that can open all doors? Does he have Fred Walker's key? Did he find it under the flower pot next to the welcome mat? We don't know. And I don't think it's our right to ask these questions. It is. We should ask these questions. Uh, so Batman is searching around, isn't finding anything, when suddenly he opens a closet, and inside, hanging from a hook by his jacket, like he is a, a little dweeb in, in 
uh, high school, is Fred Walker. And Batman takes him off and lays him down on the couch or a settee. And he says, Walker, can you hear me? Who did this to you? And he says, Clayface. Clayface. And he dies. He's a dead man. He's a dead Fred Walker, which is a great, great nickname. Dead Fred Walker. Dead Walker. Tuesdays on the CW. Uh, So Batman says, uh, hmm, Clayface. Who is Clayface? Not Roxy Brenner. Certainly not this dead man. Can it be Ned Norton, the director? Or perhaps Ken Todd or Kenneth Todd? Because let's use his full name. Thank you very much. He didn't walk around calling himself Ken, although the Barbie movie did teach us all that it's okay to just be Ken. So we then cut to Robin, and he is patrolling the studio uh, set, the the set of the Dread Castle movie, and he sees a light in one of the high towers of the Dread Castle, and so he is, you know, a precocious young boy, so he's going to go and investigate it. Uh, But the person who has lit the light sees him and it is Clayface um and I should I guess I should describe what Clayface looks like because I you know when I think of Clayface I think of you know 10 15 foot tall man made out of clay who can change his body shape just like in the animated series or the more modern understanding of Clayface but this Clayface uh basically looks like a guy wearing a purple suit with a purple cloak and it could just be purple because that's the color that they had to work with. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily supposed to be purple or if it's supposed to be just some sort of dark color. And a sort of uh, wide-brimmed hat, uh, also purple. And his face looks... It's often uh, cloaked in shadows, so you can't really see it. But you can always see his sort of eyes. They're always crazed and very wide and big. Uh, to, so... Um, We'll, we'll find out later why his face looks like this. But uh, now that we know what Clayface looks like, uh, I can just say Clayface, and you can all imagine what I'm talking about. He says, hmm, someone is investigative. Oh, sorry, inquisitive. That's my V. But not for long. Aha! And Robin enters the castle of, of the, the, you know, the Dread Castle movie and says... Gosh, what a spot for a murder. You're right, Robin. What a spot for a murder. And just around that corner is Clayface, and he is holding a knife or waiting for Robin to come up the stairs. Robin does, and Clayface leaps out at him. Uh, Robin ducks, and uh, so Clayface overshoots his mark and hurdles over his shoulders. And uh, then they go into a sort of hand-to-hand combat because uh, Clayface lost his knife in falling down the stairs. Uh, a bit. So they begin to tussle. Uh, Robin trips over a, uh, a fallen lamp and uh, is is knocked out by cracking his head against a wall, which, you know, after this is done, hopefully Bruce takes him to see a doctor. Uh, Alfred doesn't exist yet, so who's supposed to tend to his wounds? And so Clayface takes him to the edge of this castle and drops him into the fully functional moat below. At that moment, Batman has returned from checking um, the other places, checking on Kenneth Todd, um, and he sees Robin falling into the moat, and he dives in as quickly as possible, 
and uh, just as just as Robin's body sinks into the water and gets him out and gets him up and alive again, Robin then informs Batman that it was some monster uh, or monster man up in the castle, and Batman and Robin go and investigate the the castle and discover that whoever it was is gone. And and they were wondering what they were, he was doing up here. And Batman says, probably surveying the scene for his next murder. Clayface, dot, dot, dot. I wonder if, dot, dot, dot. Uh, we then cut to the next morning. Uh, in a dimly lit room, a man applies a grotesque makeup. Clayface. So that is why his face looks like that's not what his real face looks like. His real face probably looks like a regular person. But he says, one more, I once more, I don the garments of death. This morning, Miss Julie begins her murder scene in Dread Castle. Perhaps it shall prove prophetic. Ha! Prophetic. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, so we're on the set later in the day, and uh, they're filming Julie's murder scene, death scene for the movie. The uh, I guess they must have gotten some sort of stand-in, because obviously Kenneth Todd is... No, wait, no, Kenneth Todd is alive. Who was... Oh, it was Fred Walker. That's right. It's Fred Walker who he was uh, checking on, who he found dead. That's right. That's my that's my B. Um, I'll let you know. I had to cut in the middle uh, of, of this issue, so that's why I completely forgot it was, it was Fred Walker and not Kenneth Todd who was murdered at his house. So that's, that's on me. Uh, so we... See up above in the catwalk, uh, Clayface, he has a knife, and he is going to throw it down at Julie, killing her. Uh, But before he can, a rope is tied around his wrist, pulling the knife out of his hand, and the Batman then dives at him. And it says that the speed of thought, which I looked up, and is about a quarter of a millisecond, so that means that uh, Batman is very fast. Uh, he He tackled Clayface at the speed of thought. Man. Flash, you know. <laughs> Watch out. Batman's coming for your throne. He can move at the speed of thought. Uh, they tussle up on the catwalk, and uh, Bentley uh, wants to get shots of it with the camera because he, he really likes Batman and thinks that he should be an actor. He should be in movies. Um, Batman and Clayface continue to fight, and Clayface, uh, while getting a little space from Batman jumps off the catwalk onto the rope, but as he does this, as he's swinging down, Robin jumps off the catwalk and lands right on his shoulders, knocking him to the ground and then punching him in the face. Uh, or is that, it seems like maybe possibly midair. It's not. It's kind of confusing because it, sh- it cuts from Robin landing on Clayface's shoulders. So I don't know if, that, if Clayface has landed at that point. And then Robin is then standing on, or, you know, parallel with Clayface, and then he punches him in the face. It's kind of a confusing perspective. Uh, A rope then comes down and catches Clayface around the midsection and pulls him up, you know, dangling him uh, above the ground so he can't escape. Uh, They tie, it was Batman who did that. Uh, they, They lower him. Oh, but first, sorry. Batman says something. He says, Clayface, from now on, your name is Mud. Get it? Get it? Mud? Clayface? Clay? Yep. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, They tie him up and uh, bring him back down to the ground. 
uh, where Batman reveals that that his face is um, prosthetics and, and makeup, and it's revealed to be Basil Carlo, uh, the former star of the original Dreadcastle, uh, the original The Terror, which is what the monster is called in the movie Dreadcastle. It's then explained that uh, Basil Carlo is... He hated that Todd was going to be the one in the remake of, of one of his movies instead of him being asked. So he dressed up as a uh, another monster from one of another of his films and was murdering people as it came up in the script so that Kenneth Todd was going to be the last one because at the end of the movie, the terror kills himself or is murdered, one of the two. Uh... So, uh, they, Batman and Robin save the day, and before the comic finishes, um, Mr. Bentley, the studio exec, is, is, he says, sensational, you two are sensational, I got you both in fight pictures, stay with me, and you have, you'll have a career in the movies, and Batman says, sorry, our career is our constant battle against crime and evil, and Julie, uh, sort of off to the side, because she doesn't know, obviously, that Bruce Wayne is Batman, she says, they're what I call a pair of real heroes, and I don't mean real, R-E-E-L. Very good. Ho-hum, if only Bruce was so dashing. All right. Well, kind of rude, Julie. Uh, but that, yeah, and then it says, of course, the, the typical, you know, see Batman and Robin in every issue of Detective Comics. And that'll do it for the Batman issue, or the Batman story, I always do that, the Batman story in this issue of Detective Comics. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, I, or I, don't, I, I don't think it's great. I think it's very typical of a Golden Age story. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't hate it. There's, I've certainly read worse stories. Um, uh, it's nice that ba- uh, the, the villain Clayface has been around for so long, although I will spoiler some things for you just so... That you're aware, that you that um, you're wondering when is Clayface going to turn into Clayface? Not for a while. Basil Carlo only appears twice in the Golden Age, and then he doesn't appear again in any real way until post Crisis on Infinite Earths during the No Man's storyline, where he has become an actual Clayface person again. Uh, the Clayface that we all think of is Matt Hagen uh, from the Silver Age. So that's when he, you know, becomes a sort of shape-shifting clay monster. Uh, but Basil Carlo doesn't become a clay monster until after Crisis on Infinite Earths. So uh, we'll see Boris Karloff one more time uh, in this show, but he'll probably show up sometime in uh, Crisis on Inf- Issue by Issue Crisis, our Friday show. Uh, let's move on now to the Crimson Avenger. As I said earlier, this issue of the story of the Crimson Avenger was written and drawn by John Letty, although in the comic itself, he uh, signs it Jack Letty, which I've never understood why Jack is a nickname for John, but it always is. That's why they call JFK Jack. Uh, It doesn't make any sense to me, but uh, let's move on to the actual story. We first see an armored truck delivering currency deposits to the city bank, a normal thing that happens at banks. 
when uh, across the river, a, an evil-looking man, he's got a sort of evil-looking face, and he's got long hair like an evil person. Uh, he says that the truck is in his sights, and now he's going to let him have it. And you think it's going to be bullets or something, uh, but it's not. It is a strange and powerful current that paralyzes everyone on the distant city street. When suddenly, from around the corner, uh, another truck comes and says, Here we are, Joe. Yeah, and everyone on the street is knocked out, just like the boss planned. Get the dough quick. There's no telling how long the current is going to last. So these are clearly working with the man in uh, the tower across the river. Across the river. They get all the money out of the truck and drive away uh, without any problems with their bank heist. It's pretty, you know, if you knock out everyone in the general area, it's pretty easy to steal things. Shortly after, probably a few hours later, Mac, uh, a reporter for the uh, Globe Leader, the, uh, the paper uh, ran by, um, oh my gosh, Lee Travis, oh, I, com I completely forgot the Crimson Avengers name for a second. Lee Travis, he, uh, he lets Lee Travis know about all of the stuff that just happened to this bank robbery a few hours ago. And uh, Lee puts him on the case to write up a, a story. Uh, and then Lee is going to take a look at the scene of the crime. And he's looking around the street. And he's saying, where in the world could those mysterious rays have come from? The buildings are so tall around this street, they ought to block off any rays directed at it. But say, the street runs straight down to the river. And in that direction, there are no buildings to block off any rays. Why the rays couldn't have been coming from one of the buildings? I don't know uh, why that leap of logic was made, but I guess they couldn't have been. So he has deduced with his great detective skills that the rays had to have come from down the street across the river. So he says, uh, that means that some new type of instrument powerful enough to throw the rays across the river must have been used. And of course, the suits the bandits wore were made of rubber, which protected them from the rays. Another, another deductive leap, but one that makes sense, I guess. Also, the Crimson Avenger only has six pages, so you gotta... You gotta really, really be economical with the story. You gotta keep the things moving, keep the, the information and the action coming. So he says, tonight, the Crimson will have a look into the whole thing. So he gets into the Crimson mobile with Wing, of course, at the, at the wheel. And they drive across the river, and uh, Crimson Avenger has calculated the distance and direction in his mind. And he's got a pretty good idea where they'll find the bandits. He says the place should be around this vicinity once they've driven across the river and, you know, into the countryside a bit. Uh, according to my figuring, look for a high building or tower. They find it. It's a, it, I mean, it looks like a wizard tower with a, with a small house attached to it. Uh, they call it an old shack. I think this is way more than an old shack. There is a tower, very tall. Like a, almost like a observatory, sort of, I wouldn't call that an old shack. Uh, Crimson Avenger sneaks up to the wall and uh, overhears some conversations happening inside the building. Inside the building is the uh, gunman, the ray shooter, 
uh, man uh, talking to presumably one of the goons that uh, did the actual robbery, and they're talking about their next plan, their next heist, uh, because the bank is getting an even larger deposit uh, than the one that they just got away with, uh, presumably in the next few days. Uh, they say nobody can stop them, the police, nobody. The, the new invention will make them you know, invincible, basically, in terms of bank robberies. And they'll be kings. Uh, they can rule the world, I'm assuming, by just getting as much money or eventually, you know, using the, the ray as sort of a terrorist extortion device of some kind. So while the Crimson is listening in on this conversation, a man, uh, the figure of Butch, we're told, uh, who, who the two men inside are waiting for, uh, jumps around the corner and attempts to tackle the Crimson, but uh, the Crimson Avenger uses some judo-type moves to flip him and knock him out, brings him back to the Crimson Mobile, and him and Wing drive the man away. They're going to keep him undercover at Lee Travis's place, or I don't know if the Crimson has a place where he keeps all of his Crimson stuff. I would just assume it's at Lee Travis's palatial mansion. Um but they're gonna, you you know, they're gonna get information out of him, uh, and then they're going to deal with them uh, when the plan, the day of the plan, you know, comes around. So a few days later, at the Bandits' hideout, they're waiting for Butch. They haven't seen Butch in a couple days. They're like, why would he be late? Why wouldn't he show up for this? This is easy money. Uh, the the mastermind, whose name he doesn't have a name, he thinks that Butch is a traitor, and uh, the the other guy, who I also don't think has a name, thinks that, uh, he or he doesn't know why Butch wouldn't show up for this easy money, but he can do it all by himself because with the Ray, everyone's knocked out, and so they can't do anything to him anyway, so it's easy, easy to steal. So, they enact the plan just like last time, with, uh, you know, the Ray being shot, and then the one single goon coming and uh, stealing from the truck. But after he's loaded up his truck and he's about to drive away, out from a corner, an alley, something, the Crimson Avenger and presumably Wing, uh, this is like the first time that Wing has ever gotten actively involved, except for maybe like a small part in each thing, uh, which this this is kind of foreshadowing Wing becoming less of a driver and more of a sidekick. And when uh, the Crimson Avenger eventually gets its costume, his costume change to his more space-age science fiction one, uh, Wing will also get a costume similar to it. Uh, but we're not there yet, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. They jump onto the back of the truck and hold on. Uh, it'd be cooler if they had, like, skateboards so they could reenact the uh, opening scene of Back to the Future, just sketching on this uh, truck. But they don't, so they just ride on the back of it like lamos, and they ride back to the hideout of the two, uh, you know, nefarious villains. When the truck is parked and the mastermind sees it, he sees, obviously, Crimson Avenger and his associate, who we know as Wing, uh, on the back of it, and he says, who is that? And uh, Crimson Avenger says, don't move, I've got you co covered. So Wing deals with the goon in the truck. He basically just holds a gun on him, puts, holds him at gunpoint. 
and the Crimson Avenger chases the guy up the stairs. The guy, the mastermind, gets up to the top of the tower first and gets his ray and attempts to shoot it at the Crimson Avenger, you know, knocking him out, paralyzing him, whatever. But this entire time, the Crimson Avenger's costume has looked kind of different. Normally you can see his face and all that kind of stuff. He's been wearing a kind of special mask, and so is Wing. Uh, Wing's wearing a, a uniform very similar to what the goons are wearing, a specialized suit. So the ray has no effect on the Crimson Avenger. And presumably, if it was to be shot at Wing, it wouldn't have an effect on him either. So, caught off guard, the Mastermind is unprepared when uh, cr the Crimson Avenger shoots him with his gas gun, which, as long as you're not wearing a gas mask... It will always work on you. So that night in the second edition of the Globe Leader, uh, a newspaper headline, Mad Scientists Captured, Bank Funds Recovered, Bandits Are Captured by the Crimson. Uh, so Mac uh, is talking to Lee Travis, and he says, Well, boss, the Crimson's done it again. Captured that gang and rode past police headquarters and dropped them off, all tied up. Boy, how I'd like to find out who he is. And Lee Travis says, hmm, I wonder if anyone ever will find out who he is, Mac. It's Lee Travis's the Crimson Avenger. Spoiler alert. Uh, so that is the that is the Crimson. Uh, short and sweet, obviously. You, I mean, maybe you'd like a little bit of information here, maybe more of a fight uh, or something. But like I said, six pages. You gotta you gotta be economical about the story. So that's going to do it for Detective Comics number 40. So let's move on to Adventure Comics number 51. Uh, released May 9th, 1940, with a cover date of June 1940. Our Man, Sandman. Uh, Our Man, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Bernard Bailey. And Sandman, written by G Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Craig Flessel. So let's get into the Hour Man story. The Hour Man story begins with a scientist-looking man. He's wearing glasses, so you know he's smart. He is at a wax museum, and he sees the wax figures of Alvin Cartis and Two-Gun Carmody in their death duel with the G-Men. So these are two uh, bank robbers or, or robbers of some kind, bad men. Bad men that have now died, and these are wax figures of them. Uh, this that gives this guy, the scientist, an idea. So that evening, he has his men uh, break into the wax museum and steal these two wax figures. Back in his laboratory, uh, he he inserts artificial hearts and plastic with a, a, a K, a CK at the end instead of just a C. Skin, plastic skin. Uh, and, and, and he turns these wax figures into living henchmen, basically, uh, that will do their bidding. He says, I am the master, I created you, and I can destroy you. And the two wax, reanimated wax figures say, we understand, we will do your bidding. Later, we see inside of the police commissioner's office, uh, a newspaper man has uh, come in and said, hey, some witnesses told me, told my paper that, and the police commissioner cuts him off and says, I know what those witnesses said. The bank robbers look like Cardis and Carmody, but I'm sure they're dead. Uh, and suddenly, uh, someone comes in, if it's the police commissioner's assistant or something, just some guy, 
Uh, he says, here's something we've overlooked. The owner of the wax museum says his statues of Cartus and Carmody were stolen. What? Oh, my gosh. So we then see the next morning uh, at, and they always call him TikTok, and it's dumb. It's stupid. Rex Tyler's house. He says police, he's reading a newspaper, and it says police puzzled today over the strange disappearance from the wax museum of the figures of the late Alvin Cartis and two-gun Carmody. If a wild theory is true, then the two public enemies must be walking the streets free to rob and kill. And, uh, Rex Tyler thinks, hmm, this looks like a job for the Hour Man. So, he gets into costume as the Hour Man. He's got his miracle, all that kind of stuff. And he goes to the wax museum to kind of interrogate the owner of the wax museum. Like, hey, what happened to your wax figures? Uh, you know, what can you tell me? And he says that he can't, he doesn't have any more information than what he gave the police. But he uh, he's hired a watchman because he's putting up his new statue of Mad Dog Duncan. And I'm, it makes me wonder, what is this wax museum? Is it just all, it's all criminals. Welcome to the criminal wax museum. Joan of Arc, psh, get out of here. Babyface, whatever his name is, from the old-timey bank robbery days. That's what that's what the people want. Okay, so uh, that gives Rex Tyler, the Hour Man, uh, an idea. So back at the scientist, mad scientist lab, uh, word gets in that the museum is putting up a new gangster statue, uh, and so oh no, sorry, 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 not back at the mad scientist lab but back at the paper one of the reporters says that the wax museum is just put in a new gangster statue and the editor or whoever says play it up put it put it in the headlines will thieves strike again question mark uh that evening rex tyler is pretending to be the watchman uh, of the wax museum and he is uh hiding and waiting for the two uh, goons of the mad scientist to come. They do. They slip in through the window, and they steal the wax figure. Uh, Rex Tyler takes off his Watchmen costume and puts on his Hourman costume and begins chasing the car. Uh, and the two uh, thugs can't seem to chase him because, obviously, Rex Tyler's Miraclo uh, gives him, you know, really fast speed and endurance and stuff like that. So really easy to chase down a car. Uh, the two uh, thugs drive over a suspension bridge. And once they get safely to the other side, one of them gets out and shoots the uh, wires holding up the bridge. And when our man, you know, leaps onto the bridge, it snaps and he falls into the river. Um, and so they think that they've lost him, but he gets out of the water and finds their tracks on the other side of the river and follows them. But meanwhile, uh, the mad scientist has gotten the Mad Dog Duncan statue and he has done his dark deeds to turn it into a living thing. Wax guy. Um, an, an alarm goes off, an alarm system goes off, and the mad scientist says, someone passed through the invisible beam Go get him, boys. 
Um, and it was Rex Tyler. It was our man. He is standing downstairs, unbeknownst to him that he has triggered any sort of alarm when the two thugs come in. He attempts to fight back and do his our man thing, but his Miraclo is wearing off all that time waiting in the wax museum kind of ate away at his miracle time. So he is captured and brought to the mad scientist. And our man is forced to be witness to the mad scientist finishing his uh, experiment or his procedure and uh, inoculating uh, the mad dog Duncan statue into, you know, sort of the, the formula that gives them life or the semblance of life. And uh, he, is, he is alive now. The scientist then rounds up all three of his wax goons and tells them that they're going to rob uh, an armored truck uh, that he's you know, instructed in, in his instructions and kill all who stand in their way. And they don't have to fear bullets because they can't hurt them because they're made of wax. So off they go to do their nefarious deeds. Um, and obviously now our man is return to his feeble, cowardly state uh, of Rex Tyler. And the scientist, you know, I guess is taking, has a bit of a heart and says, oh, don't, don't tremble so, my friend. I'm not going to hurt you yet. Perhaps you'd like to know about my experiment. And Rex Tyler says, well, I'm, I'm a bit of a chemist myself, uh, as, as um, Norman Osborn would say, Willem Dafoe. Uh, and so the scientist explains that this formula could make a- anyone as strong as the men that he brings to life, and only his acid formula could destroy the wax figures. Rex Tyler then asks him, would you mind if I showed you a formula? And the scientist is like, well, you know what? I'm intrigued, yes. So Rex Tyler quickly mixes up a, a uh, sort of a, a liquid form of Miraclo and quickly drinks it before the scientist can stop him. Uh, now our man, once again, he uh, uppercuts the scientist and asks him where the acid is. Uh, the scientist instructs him that it's in a vial at the end. Rex, uh, Our man puts it into his ring, which I can't remember what his ring does. It must be able to contain poison or something like that. So he puts the acid in his ring, and then he races off to where the the wax goons were going. The said wax goons were hol- are holding up this armored truck, uh, and the, the police officers or security guards or whoever's running the truck, uh, they're, they're holding them at gunpoint. The hour man gets there just in time and shoots acid out of his ring, melting the wax figures uh, and saving the day. He then uh, runs off uh, because obviously vigilantes aren't well regarded in uh, in DC Comics at this point. So he makes it back home just in time as his miracle runs off, wears off once again. A fa- as far as Our Man stories go, not terrible. Obviously we've read worse. Um, there's at least some explanation of the process by which he creates them, even if it is just like, I've made this thing. I don't have to explain how it works, but I've made it. Uh, I have a plastic skin and artificial hearts that can make wax figures come to life. But at least he's not just trying to stop someone from stealing a quote-unquote formula. For what? Don't ask questions. Uh, 
So that's the Hourman story. Uh, so let's move on to the Sandman story. The Sandman story begins with the Sandman knocking out um, a man. He's holding a gun. Uh, well, the Sandman is obviously holding a gun. His, you know, gas gun. But uh, the man he's knocking out was also holding a gun. And uh, the Sandman rummages around in his pockets looking for these things called the Van Lu Emeralds. But instead of finding these emeralds, he finds a pawn ticket. Uh, so that's that's weird uh, to him. Or, I mean, maybe it's not. I don't know. Yet in the story, I should say. We don't really know that. I know that. It's weird. But you don't know it's weird. Uh, Sandman gets in his Sandman mobile and says that he's supposed to be dining with Diane Belmont, his... Uh, his girlfriend, I guess, Wesley Dodds' his girlfriend, uh, in half an hour, so he better hurry. So he drives home quickly, uh, changes back into Wesley Dodds, and then drives over to the Belmont residence, which, if you remember, uh, Mr. Belmont is Diane's long-lost father, who also happens to be the district attorney of whatever city they are in. Uh, at this moment I don't know it's never said but he is the district attorney so that's important uh, Wesley asks him what's new in the world of crime Mr. District Attorney and the district attorney says well the Van Lu uh, emeralds were stolen today and uh, Mad Madoon escaped from jail three days ago so things aren't going great Wesley uh, Diane comes down she's wearing a yellow dress strapless no sleeves anything like that uh, it looks nice. They leave. They say goodbye to uh, Attorney Belmont, Mr. District Attorney, Attorney Belmont, whose name first name I've forgotten. And they get in the car. And if you remember, Diane Belmont is the only person that knows that Wesley Dodds is the Sandman. So she immediately, once they start driving away, is like, I mean, I know we have a dinner date, but there's work that needs to be done, Wesley. And, he's, and he says, yeah, I know, Madoon and those Van Lu emeralds. And then uh, Wesley explains where he what, what what he was doing when the f story first started. He heard it through you know in the underworld through the channels that Flip Benson was doing a job at Van Luce to steal their emeralds. Uh, Sandman got there ahead of him, but he found that the emeralds were already gone. And when Flip Benson got there, he gassed him. And then rifled through his pockets and found a pawn ticket from Fencets. F-E-N-C-E-T. Uh, Fencet. Uh, so that's where we're going now. Now, they're, don't, they're not going to his pawn shop. And I don't know why. It's, it, there seems to be a, a weird leap in logic here. Because why would one crook having a pawn ticket to uh, a pawn store a pawnbroker mean that it was somehow even attached to these emeralds that were stolen like could he not just have i don't know needed to pay rent and so he pawned his watch and he's going to do this job stealing the emeralds and then he'll fence the emeralds and then use that money to get both his watch back and still have money for regular expenses doesn't that make more sense logically then oh this this pawn ticket must be must be connected uh, so 
But whatever. Uh, if if we if we got trapped in every single leap in logic, we wouldn't get anywhere in these comics. Am I right, folks? So Wesley and Diane go back to Wesley Dodds's house, where he changes back into his Sandman costume, and uh, has Diane drop him off at the backside of Frank Fensett's house. He is the pawnbroker to the to the criminal underworld, or I guess he would be a fence. It's right there in his name. And then has Diane circle the block and meet him out another side, so that after he gets the goods inside, he climbs up a tree and swings onto a balcony. Uses a glass cutter to, you know, get into the upstairs uh, balcony door, and finds Frank Fancet's private safe, and you know easily clack, uh, cracks it, uh, clicks the tumblers into place. And then there's this very funny panel where it is Frank Fensett's face, but it's not his body at all. It's just it goes to his chin and then it has his collar and the background is pink. So instead of it just being looking like a floating head, it looks like Frank Fensett has a square body, kind of like uh, in the first Spider-Verse movie, how Kingpin kind of looks where his body his like shoulders go up above his head. I'm going to post it for primo panels uh, for this episode, but it's very funny to look at. But he hears something going on in his library, and uh, while Sandman is looking in the safe, finding not the jewels, finding nothing in the safe, Frank Fancet is coming down the hallway, opens the door into his library where his safe is, and finds nobody there. Sandman has escaped out the door, presumably the balcony door. Uh, just then, behind Frank comes in Flip Benson and uh, an associate, and they say, "Hello, Frankie. Surprised to see me, ain't you?" And he says, "Oh, oh, Flip Benson. What, what do you want?" And Benson says, "Where's the, you know, where are the emeralds that Mad Madoon brought you tonight? Spill it. We're in a hurry." So this is where Mad Madoon comes back into the picture. Clearly, he has he's the suspect numero uno in the emerald theft even even in the underworld it's like oh that was probably mad madoon he just got out three days ago he needs that needs the cash so uh frank fancet says madoon didn't give him to me honest and i mean flip starts to get a little violent says don't lie to me you pig uh so at this point we learned that sandman has been hanging from the window by his fingertips and he drops down, and while he does that, he's thinking, sounded to me like Fensette was telling the truth. But where, that's the mystery, isn't it? Where are the Van Lu emeralds? So Sandman sneaks back in through the house through a different way and climbs up the stairs into the hallway and is standing in the doorway kind of listening. And Benson finally gets the information out of uh, Fensette, and he says that Mad Madoon took the emeralds to Wesley Dodds's house. What? Wesley Dodds? Sandman thinks, Wesley Dodds? Why, that's me, the Sandman. The Sandman then leaps into action, tackling Flip Benson, knocking him out, and his associate attempts to uh, get the Sandman, but uh, the Sandman lifts his feet up like he's doing airplane to a little kid. You know, if you, you know, you put the, you put your feet up like on the, the child's chest and kind of hold on to their hands and lift them up by your feet, by your legs, uh, if, if 
if anyone else knows what I'm talking about when you say playing airplane. But instead of having a fun time pretending to fly, uh, he sends the man's head into the wall, knocking him out as well. And then just for good measure, uh, the Sandman punches Frankie Fensett and then interrogates him a little bit. So he says, hey, tell me, tell me what, where Madoon, you know, put those emeralds. And so he explains that Madoon wanted a secure place to hide the jewels. So he picked uh, one of them rich society types who have safes, broke in and put the safes into, or sorry, put the jewels into that safe. And then just for just to hide his track, Sandman says, well, where does Dodds live? Where does this Wesley Dodds person, what a, what a name, who even is this guy? Where does he live? He lives on Park Drive. So that's good to know. Uh, Sandman then rushes out of the house back to the car where Diane has pulled up on the street. And they quickly rush back to Wesley Dodds' house. Now, you may be thinking, well, this should be pretty easy. You can just go in there and then... I don't know, just uh, give back the jewels. Wrong. Incorrect. Because it'll it'll make Wesley Dodds a target, and it'll make uh, Sandman too closely related to Wesley Dodds. So they go in, Diane and Sandman go in uh, to the Wesley Dodds' house and find the emeralds in the safe. They open them, they look at them, they're beautiful, they're worth millions. And so Sandman steals them, back and sprinkles sand on the floor to you know do his calling card so it looks like the sandman robbed dodds he got the information and 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 got the emeralds back and or stole the emeralds for himself and you think that that might be it right you know uh diane and, and wesley will go on their dinner date and it'll be all all fine well you're wrong they do go on their dinner date they go to uh, establish an alibi uh, of where they were when all of this was taking place. So they go and they have their dinner. And then Wesley is bringing Diane back home where there are police cards out front. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me this next part where the district attorney is telling the police, keep men all about the place, O'Reilly. Now, what place does he mean? Does he mean this place, the Belmont residence, or does he mean Wesley Dodds's house? Because they're not at Wesley Dodds's house. They're at the Belmont residence. And I don't know if district attorneys give orders to police. I, I don't know the, the structure, the command structure of city police departments, uh, law and order and such. Uh, but uh, District Attorney Belmont reveals that Mad Madoon is dead. Uh, the Sandman killed him in Wesley's house. So they're both shocked because there was no dead man when they were there. So they all three pile into Wesley's car and drive back to Wesley's house, and sure enough, inside is a dead Mad Madoon. Uh, it's then also revealed that Wesley apparently has a butler, uh, and I don't know if he's had a butler this entire time, and we've just never been told about it, or I've just blanked it out, but I feel like, does that butler know that he's Sandman, or does he just think he just goes out at all hours of the night for no re for whatever reason? It, I don't know. But um, he has a butler, and the butler says that he heard the shot, and there's sand underneath the body. There's the Sandman's calling card. It's right there. It's textbook, all this kind of stuff. So Wesley obviously needs to investigate this because something is fishy. He goes and secretly dons his Sandman costume, 
knocks out a police officer for good measure, and then jumps into the car that he instructed Diane to bring around back. They drive to the uh, Anchor Yacht Club uh, to go after Flip Benson because he must believe he thinks that Benson's the one who did this, and they must be out on Benson's yacht. So Salmon's going to row out there and uh, deal with them while he has Diane call in his father, her father, to bring a police boat in half an hour. Or however, obviously, however fast. You can't tell the police, okay, I'm going to need you in 30 minutes. Why? Nope. Don't ask questions, cops. Um, so the police will come whenever they feel like it. Uh, so Sandman looks into one of the portholes on the yacht after he rows out there and sees that they are torturing Fencet to find out who has the emeralds because they thought that Mad Madoon had them. They thought that Wesley Dodds' safe had them and they're nowhere to be found because obviously Sandman has them. So Sandman opens up one of those, uh, hatches, those like sort of, you know, they lift up, they have like upward opening doors like little square hatches in boats i don't know what they're called but uh, hopefully that makes sense and he i guess wraps a rope around flip benson's neck and it begins to choke him like that's you could you could murder that guy i don't know if that's your thing sandman you don't typically kill guys but one of benson's men finds uh sandman up on top and sort of hits him in the back of the head knocking him into the water and the goons and Benson think that they've obviously dealt with the Sandman because they knocked him into the water. So, I mean, he could be dead. Uh, but the cold water uh, reawakened Sandman from being knocked out, which I don't know if that's necessarily how that works. If you, like, get knocked out, if that will actually do it or not. But he climbs back up the other side. He swims under the boat and climbs up the other side, uses his gas gun, now knocks them all out. So he'll be knocked out for probably a while, at least an hour, I think. And then swims back to shore. Or rows back to shore. It's not said. But he finished the job and he hears uh, the police launch, uh, which is a type of boat, coming from, I'm assuming, the police docking point. And so Salmon gets out of the area. The next morning, the Van Loo's wake up to find the box containing their emeralds resting on a table in their house. And uh, they're covered in sand. The Sandman has returned them to us. Yay, the Sandman's a good guy. And that's the end of the story. It says, follow the Sandman as he fights police and underworld to achieve true justice in the next issue of Adventure Comics. That's exciting. I actually think that this was a very good Sandman story. I think Sandman stories typically are pretty good. He's got more pages to work with than Our Man. He gets in anywhere between 10 to 13-ish, depending. Uh, this one was only 10, but I think they use these 10 very well. Uh, a lot of red herrings and sort of twists and turns. You know, the, the, the shock of learning what the emeralds are in Wesley Dodds' house. And then you think that everything's in the clear, and then suddenly there's a dead gangster in Wesley's house. I think it's really well done. I think it's a very good, it's a very good story. And I guess it does just show that there's still a lot of good stories in the Golden Age, even if they are sometimes pretty silly. But that is going to do it for this slightly shorter than normal 
well, actually more than slightly shorter than normal. I just couldn't, I couldn't justify putting in a whole other issue with four stories, all 13 pages in length, because that's what Superman number five is. So unfortunately, I couldn't justify that, but it'll be in next week's episode, which I also think will be possibly a little bit short. I Possibly not, uh, depending on how much time I have, obviously, because I'm, like I said, I'll be traveling. So I'm going to get, I'm obviously going to have an episode, but it'll depend on if it's two or three issues. But until then, uh, reach out on uh, social media or or give us a follow on uh, Instagram and Twitter. They're both in the show notes. We're also now on threads, uh, which I mean, I'll probably just be sharing Instagram stories there. Uh, I mean, hopefully I do more. I thought it would be easier to share in between Instagram and threads. It's actually really just as easily to do it on Twitter. But we're in both those places, so if you're if you don't like Elon Musk like me and you don't like to use Twitter, um, then then we're on Threads. But we're all I'm always posting uh, comic book covers of all the comics uh, covered, ha, comic covers covered uh, in that week's episode, and uh, I'm getting back into posting primo panels because I'm remembering to actually, you know, get those primo panels and remember to post them. There was a lot of good ones. Uh, this past week uh, with the Batman number one with all the Joker and and Papa Spank and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but until next time on Friday when we'll be back for Issue by Issue Crisis, uh, I am your host, Nick Byers, and I'll see you around. Mm-hmm.